around two years ago, uh, we embarked on studying our portfolio, which is the largest uh, commercial portfolio in New York. We are the largest commercial landlord in New York. Uh, evaluating every site that we had in order to determine where we felt you know, the best location would be uh, to site one of these gaming facilities. Good morning and welcome to Deconstruct, a podcast by The Real Deal. I'm Isabella Farr. I'm Susanna Cavanaugh. And today we are looking at what will be the latest way to entertain yourself in New York City, a brand new casino. Right. So I know that this was something that came out of Governor Kathy Hochul's budget last year, right? Yes. So New York voters actually ushered in legislation that greenlit casinos nearly a decade ago. So in late 2013, then-Governor Andrew Cuomo approved four casinos in upstate New York, and the idea there was to give those operators enough time to build a clientele base before they had to face off against a city casino. That's all according to the New York Times. But then, last April, Albany okayed three casino licenses for downstate New York. And that doesn't just encompass the city, right? Downstate includes Westchester County and Long Island, too. Yes. And since we've seen a handful of proposals from high-profile developers make headlines, so those firms include Stephen Ross's related companies, Joseph Sitz, Thor Equities, Stephen Cohen, the owner of the Mets, proposed one next to Mets Stadium in Queens. And S.L. Green, New York's top office owner, is gunning for a Times Square bid. That's right. So we chatted with Brett Hershenfeld. He's the SL Green executive who has helped shape the firm's plans over the past two years. We chatted about the shift that building a casino would be for New York's largest office landlord and why he thinks Times Square is kind of the ultimate site for the project. So really, it's a look behind the curtain. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. So first, let's get into last week's top stories. So last week, we learned that Citadel, the firm run by hedge fund billionaire Ken Griffin, is planning a 51-story office tower in Midtown. I feel like any developments in the office space at this point are novel enough to turn some eyes. Right. It reminds me of that headline that we had on a magazine story that said, like, who's crazy enough to build office right now? And I think that that's, like, what everyone thinks of. Yes. This project makes sense because it would actually act as a home base for Citadel. So there's already a tenant built in. Mm. Bloomberg first reported that the project would replace Vornado's 350 Park Avenue. That's where Citadel currently holds its offices. The firm would eventually occupy a little more of half of the new building, spanning 1.7 million square feet. But the project isn't expected to wrap up until 2031, so it's possible that the office landscape will transform further or it'll start to settle into what its new normal is. We have some time to kind of see how that project plays out. Mm -hmm, definitely. We also saw a bit of true crime hit the real estate world earlier this month. So Tishman Spire executive Anna Walsh of Boston went missing in the early hours of New Year's Day. She left home to board a flight to D.C., but on January 4th, she didn't show up to work and Tishman Spire reported her missing. Yeah, and I saw that they arrested her husband last week for misleading the investigation. Yeah, and the evidence is like honestly pretty damning. So the husband, Brian Walsh, he spent over $400 on cleaning supplies at Home Depot. He bought mops, tarps, and a bucket while wearing a mask and gloves. 
the police then found a bloody knife in his basement and that he'd also searched for how to dispose of a 115-pound woman's body. Yeah, that's really not looking too great for him. So turning away from true crime and onto commercial real estate, a little, you know, less exciting. This actually is, you know, pretty thrilling news. We saw even more distress crop up this week. In San Francisco, reporter Emily Landis broke the news that one of San Francisco's largest multifamily owners, Veritas, defaulted on a nearly $450 million loan. The debt had covered 62 rent-controlled properties. It went into special servicing in early November and wasn't paid off when the loan came due on November 15th. That, to me, seems like it sort of connects to the rent-stabilized distress in New York that we talked about last week. Yeah, definitely. That was your story. And a spokesperson for the firm said its struggle to repay the debt was a product of increased city regulation, the rising cost of doing business, higher taxes. So there are definitely common issues between the coasts. And I know you reported on a similarly sized default by the Chatrit Group. Yeah. So I found that in a report on multifamily financing from TREP. Chatrit is shopping around the national 43 property portfolio as it faced default on a $481 million loan. Um, just like Veritas Trouble, the loan entered special servicing last year for maturity default, which means Chatrit couldn't pay off the debt when it came due. TREP pegged that distress to rising rates, the loan is adjustable rate, and really low occupancy rates, which honestly is weird given how hot multifamily has been. But TREP said that Chitreat had grappled with just a 76% occupancy rate. And by comparison, in December 2021, um, occupancy rates peaked at 97.5%, I think. So huge gap there. Yeah, I know. I'm writing a multifamily story right now. And a lot of experts say that there's a lot of construction set to come to market, but there's still a shortage across the U.S. So occupancy rates are, mm -hmm. you know, have been really, really high over the last couple of years. So that 76% is very surprising. Do you think that those higher vacancy rates are because of where Chatreet's properties are located? I know that the Sun Belt has seen demand wane over the past six months, for example. Yeah, I think it's possible. Like a number of Tetreat's properties are in the Sunbelt. And just overall, we saw last week that while rents in New York are holding strong, they're still plateauing, says Jonathan Miller. Prices nationally have been slipping for four months and they should continue to fall in 2023. That's the expectation. So that would have posed headwinds for Chatreet and other multifamily owners. But the firm's troubles seem to have started before that downtick in demand. So honestly, it's kind of hard to say. Oh, and we should wrap up what we got out of Kathy Hochul's State of the State last week. Yeah, so that was on Tuesday. So as Catherine told us in last week's episode, affordable housing was expected to be a top priority for her administration. And Hogel did not disappoint on that front. Other metro areas are creating housing at two to four times the rate that we are. Boston rate is almost double. Washington, D.C., triple. Seattle, four times. So with less supply... Demand drives up prices, and who gets squeezed? Young families starting out, middle-income families looking to move up, low-income families, people can't even get the starter home anymore. That's why, since becoming governor, housing has been front and center of my agenda. She laid out three-year housing targets for upstate and downstate New York. The goal is to build 800,000 new units in the next decade. Every single locality across the state 
will have a target for building new homes. Upstate, the target is for the current housing stock to grow 1% every three years. Believe me, it's very manageable. Downstate, 3% every three years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there is a bit of a stick over carrot approach to getting developers to get those units built, though. Yeah, so if towns and cities don't meet Hochul's targets, then this so-called fast-track approval process will kick in. Projects that have more than 20 units and a certain number of affordable apartments will be approved even if they don't fit local zoning restrictions. Which reminds me of the builder's remedy in California a bit. Definitely. So we're seeing cities in California and New York enforce a hard line on their housing targets. In California, we did an episode on this late last year, but a few cities missed deadlines to get their housing plans approved. And one of the penalties, you know, if you don't get that housing plan in on time, is that cities then lose the privilege to approve or deny projects. Like in New York with this fast track, it gives developers this huge advantage. It seems like the message coast to coast is that we just need more housing and we need it now. Mm-hmm. Definitely. This podcast is sponsored by Dotted, the asset optimization platform with a white glove approach that helps you succeed and save time. We onboard all your asset data for you and you get a dedicated customer success rep so you can focus on what you do best and get the help you need when you need it. Get your white glove experience today by getting a demo at Dotted.com. D-O-T-T-I-D.com. So before we get into the interview with SL Green's Brett Hershenfeld, I wanted to offer a bit more of the lay of the land as far as what the casino bidding process looks like so far. In the first week of January, the state opened applications for casino licenses downstate. There are three available licenses, but it's expected that two will probably go to existing racinos. Those are combination racetrack and casinos. One of those is in Yonkers, another one is in Queens, and if they get full casino licenses, both could offer live table games, so poker, blackjack, yeah. So far, we've seen seven projects floated by big-name developers. For a map of who's who and where they're looking to build, you should check out the piece Catherine Brenzel wrote that we'll link in the description. But for now, I'll outline the Manhattan contestants. Vernado Realty is pushing for Herald Square. Related teamed with Wynn Resorts for a Hudson Yards project, not a surprising setting for a Steve Ross project. Solaviv Group is looking at a Midtown East development. And then there's SL Green's Times Square bid. All proposals are going to be reviewed by the state's Gaming Facility Location Board, who will then make recommendations to the state's Game Commission. And the Game Commission will have the final say on who gets the licenses. According to the Times, Hochul said she would stay out of things, but she can still influence the final decision. And we're expecting a determination as early as this year, but, you know, that could end up being next year. We'll see how things pan out. With that debriefing out of the way, let's look at SL Green's hopes and dreams for a Times Square casino. Well, it's an incredible opportunity to bring something that uh, we believe will carry enormous amount of you know economic development, job creation, and you know an opportunity to bring a new quality of entertainment to New York City uh, that will you know have its place for the next uh, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years down the road. Around two years ago, uh, we embarked on studying our portfolio, which is the largest uh, commercial portfolio 
in New York. We are the largest commercial landlord in New York. Uh, evaluating every site that we had in order to determine where we felt you know, the best location would be uh, to site one of these gaming facilities. So let's talk about location then. I, you know, you're going with Times Square. Clearly, it's a great pick for tourism. What else went into the choice of that neighborhood? So, you know, first and foremost, um, you know, it's important to note that we're not deciding on whether or not gaming is a good thing. Uh, that was already voted on, uh, you know, many, many years ago. That's why the seven licenses were put forth. So what we're deciding here is what's the best location holistically for three licenses to go downstate. And, you know, there's, there's talk out there that, uh, you know, two of those licenses seem to be favored, although nothing is for sure. And, and certainly the state's RFP uh, notes that, you know, that two of the licenses might go, one in Queens and one in Yonkers, because they have existing Racino facilities established in the community, so on and so forth. Uh, and so really, if, if, you, if you consider that as a betting favorite, then we start thinking about where, where should the third license go that has the most impact on New York for the taxpayers and for the reason, the entire reason why we voted for this in the first place, the most economic activity, et cetera. We feel that doing it in Manhattan just increases the size of the, con the consumer pie because, you know, tourists and affluent New Yorkers or affluent individuals from New Jersey uh, aren't going to frequent the locations outside of Manhattan on a you know, recurring basis. By putting it in Manhattan, you gain access to tourists who are not going to fly in or commute to New York to go to a location in Queens or in Yonkers or a second location in Queens or in Long Island. Uh, and they commute for someone with, with extraordinary means in Manhattan or in New Jersey to get to those locations hour, two, three hours in a car, maybe four hours if you talk about a round trip. It's just not something that people are going to make you know, on a recurring basis. Furthermore, by not citing the third in Queens or elsewhere outside of Manhattan, the, that third facility won't cannibalize the consumer base going to one of the two that will likely get it. Because otherwise, they're just going to draw from the same base. Half will go to one, half will go to the other, and it's not increasing the size of the pot. Within Manhattan, where we went and studied our portfolio, you know, there's the, first and foremost, not around schools, not around parks, not around churches. Uh, you have to have a certain lot size because, you know, below a certain lot size, it's just super inefficient to have a gaming floor. We arrived on one location, one location only because of several factors, and, and that location is Times Square. Times Square because it is the densest commercial location of any neighborhood we feel in the world. You know, there's no more densified establishment of hotels, restaurants, Broadway, non-Broadway entertainment, retail. Uh, the neighborhood is what the world looks to. It's the crossroads of the world. Uh, when we think about, you know, where are new technologies coming? Where is the new marketing coming? Where do we want to have a commercial presence? So let's talk a bit more about competition. You told The Real Deal previously that SL Green's project is a New York project while everyone else is doing a Vegas project. So what did you mean by that? So the Vegas model is typically designed to uh, provide all forms of entertainment for a gaming, and they, and they really call it more of a resort model, where a consumer will come, anything, any one of their of the desires, whether it's to, to, to eat or to shop or to see a show 
or uh, to game or to, and to have a hotel, everything is um, subsumed inside the four walls of the facility. And they're designed without exit signs, without windows. They're designed so people come, they stay one, two, three days, and they don't frequent anything outside of that facility. And they're, they're moated, and, and they're more uh, horizontally designed, right? They're not vertically designed, they're horizontally spread out, and, and everything you can imagine is involved within. I, you know, that's like the, that's the Vegas style model. Um, the New York model in our facility is designed in a way that we are not large enough to put forth all of the product offering or the amount, we're, we're, we're large enough to offer every type of product offering, meaning do we have restaurants? Yes. Do we have retail? Yes. We have hotel? Yes. We have the gaming? Yes. We have entertainment? Yes. Um, but we don't have the amount of each one of those categories, uh, the supply, in order to meet the amount of demand. And so therefore, the individuals that we will attract to come to Caesars Palace Times Square will, in essence, have to frequent establishments outside of our, of our project. So for example, AKRF is our economic consulting company. They, they project that on a daily basis, we'll generate you know, around 2,700, 2,750 room nights of demand, room demand, uh, on a daily basis. Within our facility, we're only building, or we only have the means to deliver 950 to 1,000 rooms. So that excess, which is approximately 636,000 room nights a year, is going to go to hotels that we partner with, local union hotels in and around Times Square, where we can direct people that say, we want to come to Caesars Palace, although you don't have availability, but you can go stay at one of these hotels, give them the revenue, still earn points. We may decide to provide some form of compensation to them you know, or comp because they game with us, but they stay elsewhere. So it's in essence spreading the love for, to the hotel community, right? Because we just can't provide the amount relative to the demand. So I believe the application process opened last week. Do you expect to face more competition than we've seen publicly announced? I do, I do, but um, we'll see what that looks like. There's, there's a, you know, there's different classes, I feel, of gaming operators. Uh, there's only so many of them um, in terms of those with, you know, responsibility. I, I don't think we found, we could have found a better operator than Caesars. You know, they're the largest uh, gaming operator in North America. Caesars is also already licensed in New York. They, are, they have a sports gaming license. They already pay in excess of $100 million a year in taxes to New York State. I mean, they are ingrained in New York already. The, the category, the size of that, the category of that upper echelon of gaming operators, there's only so many of them. And I think the bids that you think that you may say, well, those we didn't know about, but they'll come. I just don't know that the quality of the operator brings the same level, not to mention the project itself, but the quality of the operator is not the same level of, of a Caesars. Deconstruct airs every Monday wherever you get your podcasts, so subscribe now. Next week, we're looking at the state of the hotel market. Tune in then.